Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and Handelman Award winner, John Brennan. And John, I've been spending a lot of time lately at my mom's house as she's preparing to downsize to a condo and sell the house I grew up in. So we're helping her pack boxes and throw stuff out. And I went through the bookshelf in my old room and unearthed a few treasures, most notably an article written about me in the local paper when I won the league tennis singles title in high school, as well as my first ever published piece of writing, a letter to the editor that ran in Pro Wrestling Illustrated in 1990. Uh, anyway, this whole process of getting my mom ready to move out is massive. My wife is a big thrower outer, but my parents generally were not. So there's a lot of crap on shelves and in boxes that hasn't been touched in decades. Curious, where do you fall on that spectrum, John? Are, are you a hoarder, a habitual thrower-outer, or somewhere in between? Well, I remember Topps Trading Card Company did a big promotion a few years ago where the pitch was, you get a chance to get back that beloved card that your mom threw out on the premise that everybody's mom pretty much threw out all their cards, <laughs> right. especially from, from my collecting era, the late 1960s to the mid-1970s, when nobody ever believed these things were going to be worth a nickel. Um, except I still have about 10,000 dog-eared baseball, football, <laughs> basketball, and hockey cards that have moved with me about eight or nine times. Mom didn't throw any of them out. Uh, it's a cool era, too, with NFL and AFL, NBA and ABA, NHL and WHA, the first hints of action photos on cards and so on. You know, the early cards of players with crew cuts, later ones of some with Fu Manchus, which might be another Google phrase now that I think about it. Fu Manchu, you familiar with that? Or no? Yeah, I think I think most bit, people okay. know that one. The facial, right. facial hairstyles, they're, they're very uh, cyclical, I feel like. Okay. It's, it's definitely come back at some point in the last few All years. Right. <laughs> now, but aside from hoarder and thrower-outer that you mentioned, another category here definitely is live in a house or live in a condo or apartment. Mm. And I've done a ladder for most of the last 35 years. So a relative hoarder in my square footage may almost match a ruthlessly efficient thrower-outer in a house for sheer volume. So my 2022 bucket list has been to finally take some stock of uh, some of these boxes I've been moving for decades and maybe part with some of it. That said, the cards stay. Even with thousands of them around, you can stack them all those boxes in the back of a closet pretty easily and not take up a whole lot of room. All right. That's that's a fair compromise. And I would say, yeah, you're not you're not a hoarder, but there's still some things you could pare down. And uh, but yeah. you are a hoarder with regard to your baseball cards. And I think <laughs> that's allowable to have a thing or two like that. Um, I definitely don't believe in some of those hard and fast rules. Like if you haven't used it or worn it in a year, throw it out. Um, I think it's a good baseline, maybe start from that position, but there are always exceptions, you know, a, a buried treasure that you forgot you had. And, and now that you rediscovered it, it's worth keeping. Um, but you definitely don't want to be that guy who, when he dies, you're leaving your kids or your wife mountains of trash to get rid of. So I think if you have to err in one direction or the other, I definitely think it's better to be the guy who threw out a few things, old magazines, action figures, baseball cards, whatever, that are now worth a couple thousand dollars. It's better to be that guy than to be a full-on hoarder. Uh, unless, of course, uh, you threw out 
an Onus Wagner baseball card. That would that would flip the equation. Yeah, I mean, my dad lived to be 92. And by his mid-80s, he definitely said, like, for his birthday or Christmas, or don't give me anything that is going to take up any space, basically. <laughs> right. You can give him a, you know, a gift certificate or maybe a small book or something, but uh, or a CD, maybe, but uh, nothing else. And uh, he had pared down his place to um, almost nothing, except he had a walk-in closet that every lady in America would die for. And he had about, <laughs> I don't know, 60 tailored shirts and jackets. Uh, he was quite the clothes horse. And that he couldn't let go of. That was like that great was, stuff. You know, that, was his one thing. that was his basic version that of that was his baseball card, card thing. Exactly, okay. exactly. <laughs> he could they didn't even, he didn't even collect back baseball cards when he was back when he was a kid. But uh, yeah. yeah, that closet, my sisters were like, oh my God, this is spectacular. <laughs> Immaculately lined up too, you know, like color coordinated. I mean, everything just perfect. But the rest of the place was easy to, uh, you know, dispose of. So you're right about that. He was always very sensible and that's the kind of thing you got to do at a certain point where, look, you know, you're just going to have, uh, you know, your kids, you know, spend endless hours on picking and choosing stuff that's not really, you know, not worth their time. Yep. Yep. I, I'm, I'm on board with his attitude on that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 202 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 201 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And the great thing about podcasts is they take up no physical space mm, yeah. at all. So feel free to hoard all 202 episodes on your listening device if that's what you want to do. Yeah, and coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Alex Kane. He's the founder and CEO of Sport Trade. We're going to ask Alex about where the idea for this sports wager trading site came from, who its target customers are, and more. But first, it's been a mercifully not as busy week in the world of gambling as usual. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. For our first story this week, uh, we should credit the outlet that first reported it, a competitor of ours, LSR. So proper credit to them for the reporting, and we'll make sure to blame them if the details prove inaccurate. Uh, But they reported that plans are in the works to rebrand the horse racing channel TVG, as FanDuel TV, a network that'll mix horse racing coverage with sports betting talk with the changeover targeted for September. There are some big media names being mentioned to host shows, most notably Bill Simmons, Pat McAfee, and Good Morning Football's Kay Adams, while the bulk of the day would be dedicated to live racing with cut-ins to FanDuel personalities providing sports updates. FanDuel execs have spoken in the past about envisioning the sportsbook evolving into more of a sports media company, and we've spoken on past podcasts about DraftKings, Caesars, etc., taking some steps in that direction. This would be a significant advancement on that front, a 24-7 sportsbook-branded network. John, compared to what TVG is now, do you think this is a good move, something that grows the audience? Any risk of FanDuel angering the horse racing fan base, of leaving them feeling like their sport is getting marginalized? Well, I mean, if horse racing fans are smart, they realize they're finally getting a spot at the table with the cool kids and the young cool kids to boot. You know, I've never heard of Kay Adams and neither have they, but maybe we can learn. Who knows? Um, I think the challenge would be to try and figure out how much original, truly core programming TVG has been offering per week and try to maintain the best and most relevant shows for that horse racing audience. If they can do that, they should be okay. I don't think even the most diehard railbird is watching TVG 24 seven, at least I hope not. So there's room for other programming there, I would think. So it's interesting. Um, they got to be careful, but I, I think it's, 
it's possible, even though I realize there's horse racing going on all day, all night, all over the world. So right. it's not uh, a given that you can just, uh, you know, wipe out certain hours. But, you know, there may be a really weak margin where not many people are betting on, you know, the Australian race, actually, probably they probably are, but maybe the New Zealand <laughs> race or the, uh, you know, some South America, there's something or other where they can get by without it. But um, it's it's a challenge. But I think it's good for horse racing to be linked at all with anything uh, sports betting. Yeah, certainly. We've talked before about how sports betting is the one element of the media that is in a, in a growth pattern. And we haven't seen that in a long time. And so if yeah. you can attach yourself to it, uh, that's probably a good thing. I'm curious how the big names hosting shows element of this would work in the sense mm. that like Bill Simmons definitely isn't getting up at 3 a.m. L.A. time to host a show on this network. So probably this is just a deal where FanDuel is rerunning a video version of a podcast that he or the Ringer Gambling Show or whatever recorded mm. the day before, which may or may not be timely the next morning. Uh, and Pat McAfee, presumably this is just like simulcasting an hour of his show that you can normally watch on YouTube. Um, bottom line, you know, FanDuel would have to spend huge for original content from name brand hosts like these guys. So more likely, I would guess they're spending small to get the right to air non-live or non-exclusive shows. It's just me guessing. But if you're talking about names like these, I think think that's probably what it looks like. Um, that said, I think it makes sense and, and, and grows the TVG audience somewhat as you're not really replacing the horse racing uh, other than, as you said, maybe some of the international overnight stuff. You're mostly just adding to it. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a podcast guy in terms of, uh, you know, where I get my information. I like mm. to listen to my sports betting info while I'm doing other things, just listening to it while I'm driving, walking the dog, playing online poker, what have you. I don't ever turn on the TV and watch these betting shows unless I'm writing a review of them. Um, and I think that's true for most of the audience my age and younger. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking FanDuel TV is mostly for an older sports betting inclined demographic, which mm. is probably a lot of what the TVG audience already is. Mm. I, it makes a, a fair amount of sense as long as they're not spending too huge to make it happen. Uh, yeah, it's interesting too. Um, suppose you get a new audience member, probably older, as you say, uh, watching TV and they they like the sports betting program and they like McAfee. And, uh, and then all of a sudden there's a horse racing program on and you're like, well, what is this about? I don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm a sports better, you know? Right. So, um, while much as I would like to think that horse racing can integrate with, um, traditional sports betters, um, that's a little bit of a weird pairing, but as you say, that's going to be pretty much an older audience. I hadn't thought about that. So that might work because even if they're not big horse racing fans, it's not like who the hell would ever watch a horse race. I mean, if you're over 60, yeah, you, if even if you're not into it, you have friends that are, you know, family that are, I mean, it's not like well, who would ever watch that? I mean, maybe they did when they were younger or whatever. So wouldn't be as strange. So I think that actually probably helps come to think of it, probably limits the audience as you say, because they're not going to watch a, a TV show anyway, but, uh, but it also maybe makes it less complicated to try and integrate all this into one network. Yeah. All right. So moving on from uh, that first story that touched on horse racing, let's go to our second story, which is all about horse racing. And we'll combine three smaller items into one here. Uh, first, 
Last weekend was the million-dollar Haskell Stakes at Monmouth Park in New Jersey, where the winner was Cyberknife, who posted a record time on the track and had owner Al Gold so excited he dropped several F-bombs live (laughs) on CNBC. Uh, The second item, we had controversy at Saratoga Racecourse in New York as there was a mechanical issue with the gate opening for race seven, and it was ultimately deemed a no contest and all bets were refunded, which former MLB catcher Paul LaDuca said was the right call. He was apparently one of the broadcasters. Um, And lastly, sad news, Ronald Dancer, a longtime New Jersey assemblyman, died Saturday at age 73 after a long illness. Dancer's father, Stanley, was an iconic horse racing figure, and Ronald was involved in numerous pieces of legislation designed to boost New Jersey's racing industry. John, these stories all unfolded in your neck of the woods, New Jersey and New York. What would you like to comment on here? Uh, well, first, it's the end of a wondrous parry in Trenton. You had 73-year-old Republican Ronald Dancer, and you still have 81-year-old Democrat Ralph Caputo, who I spoke with in my story. You know, they served on the New Jersey Assembly Gaming Committee together for almost 15 years. You know, Ralph, a former gamble on guest, I should add, uh, mm-hmm. he spent more than 30 years as Atlantic City Casino executive, while Dancer did the same as a harness racing driver and trainer. So for a state with all sorts of gambling-related innovations planned over the years, it was a match made in heaven. Um, as for Al Gold, it was a wonderful story and his excited F-bombs on CNBC. Well, on a national scale, he seemed to fit a Jersey guy part perfectly. Let's be honest, you know, and 50 years going to a racetrack like Monmouth Park, as he has. And after you survive cancer, you finally win the track's most iconic race. You're forgiven, Al. And finally, yes, the Mets, uh, ex-Mets and ex-Dodgers catcher Paul LaDuca is indeed a horse racing fanatic these days. And I agree with him that making chicken salad out of a mechanical issue rather than the alternative is something I hope betters really appreciated. We all know that whatever extra money was won that day eventually is going back to the tracks. But there's nothing wrong with letting betters get to spend a little more time and energy before we get to that final destination anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have too much to add here. Just a, a couple of quick comments. Uh, one, I realized that CNBC would rather not have the F word said on air, but how many of the people watching CNBC and watching the Haskell stakes are under the age of 10 or so. So to me, this is basically 100% amusing and 0% troubling uh, that that happened. Um, And I watched the replay of that race seven in Saratoga. Kind of interesting to see how the race played out. There was someone on the track on a horse midway through trying to wave them off and let them know to stop. And a few riders turned and looked and slowed down just a bit, but I figure their mindset was better to keep racing and try to win and deal with the fallout later than to slow Mm. down and lose. And it turns out it was nothing. Um, Mm. It was actually a hell of a finish, a a true photo finish to be able to tell which horse won, but then none of it counted anyway. Just one of those things, unscripted entertainment, things go wrong. Sometimes you try to find the most equitable solution. And from a gambling perspective, refunds really seem like the only acceptable option here. Yeah. I mean, it should be obvious, but uh, horse racing has, uh, you know, uh, put its foot in its mouth a number of times where they just don't always do the right thing. It's not just horse racing, by the way, either. All kinds of gambling issues. I mean, when in doubt, just give the give the betters a little bit of a break. As I say, you're going to get the money anyway. So a little goodwill goes a long way. Surprised you didn't go with put its hoof in its mouth. Yeah, yeah that's that a perfect have. opportunity Damn there, John. Damn it. I'm better right. than that. I'm better Next than time. that. All right. right. Moving on to our third story. Uh, We've covered several states this year that are moving very slowly in their efforts to launch legal sports betting, most notably Maryland and Ohio. Kansas legalized sports wagering just a couple of months ago on May 12th and was pushing to launch extraordinarily quickly. But the latest news 
is that it won't happen quite as quickly as they'd hoped. There was talk of being ready by September 8th in time for the first game of the NFL season, but based on the various steps remaining and the upcoming meeting dates, that seems near impossible with mid-season in October or November, probably the best they can hope for. The plan is for a universal launch with retail and mobile going live at the same time, but the Kansas Commission and the Kansas Lottery are not sharing a target date. It does appear though, that they'll be up and running before Ohio and maybe before Maryland, both of which passed legislation long before Kansas. So John, thoughts on this Kansas timeline and how important, if at all, is it to try to rush to launch when NFL season starts as Arizona did last year? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just me, but if I live in a state like Arizona that has an NFL team and a couple of Division One college programs, and I'm told the launch could come in time for game one in September, and then it does, I'm feeling pretty good about my state government. You mm-hmm. know, Now, that may not be the most logical sentiment considering the 822 or so more important issues out there, but <laughs> but there it is. I just, I just had that feeling. And then I get Kansas, which is slow. Ohio, which is slower, and Maryland, which is nearing the Rip Van Winkle level. Uh, I mean, the Maryland lottery director, I remember talking to him, he's one of the most well-known executives like with the type in the U.S., even retired in the past year once he realized what he was up against. So right. that's a problem. As far as how important the launch timing is, I think a mid-season launch could produce far more than 50% tax revenue for a full season. That's because the discretionary income is there. In Kansas, and frankly, visitors from Missouri, gamblers won't have to pace themselves as much. So they can just go hog wild in the second half. And uh, I think the state would do fine. So I think a sort of a November 1st uh, launch of that would actually be pretty good. Yeah, if, if they hit that, I, I think that the people there should be pretty happy with it. I mean, I certainly admire Kansas's efforts to move quickly, even if September 8th is kind of a pipe dream. But if I was in Maryland or Ohio, I would be pissed that I'm missing part or all of this NFL season. Maybe not quite as pissed as Larry Hogan, but uh, but pissed just the same. Um At least Kansas is trying. Um, It's nice to be there week one so that people have a chance to make their season long futures bets. But in the big picture, there's not that much opportunity lost uh, by launching sports betting in week eight or so instead of week one, even January 1st, which is when Ohio will launch. At least you're getting all of the NFL playoffs and then the Super Bowl and then March Madness. You're not missing a year of that stuff. Um, Maryland. We'll see when they launch. It's fairly outrageous how long the rollout there is taking, and they don't even have a firm date yet. I know Hogan wants week one of the NFL season, but based on the most recent article that Bennett Conlon wrote about this for Sports Handle, it's a long shot that the governor will get his wish. Now I'm thinking about Maryland, which is a weird shape state, as especially people in the Northeast know a little better. Uh, if you're out West, you don't look at those tiny little North, Northeastern states very much. Uh, <laughs> right. It's a strange one. Can you live more than 30 miles away from a legal sports betting option in Maryland? I think no. Right. North, South, East, West. I, I think mean, certain, yeah, West right. Virginia, so you West got Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, you got DC, Delaware, DC, right. Virginia. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you can be that far away from a legal option. Although what's, so I don't have a map up in front of me. What's <laughs> immediate, what's immediately to the South of Maryland is that North Carolina is right under no. them. So I guess if you're, if, if you're, if, if I'm right about that, if you're on that, Virginia, sort of, Virginia, Virginia, yeah, yeah. Oh, Virginia kind of, uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Maryland Marva, is above yeah. Virginia. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I cl- clearly, uh, my middle school geography teacher should be ashamed that I <laughs> yeah, was uh, exactly. misplacing Maryland there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Maryland betters do have options not too far away at this point. So it's just Maryland losing potential tax revenue while those yeah. betters head elsewhere. Right. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. 
Let's get to the Gamble On interview. At last count, there were 21 operational online sportsbooks in New Jersey. And in a market that crowded, one key to attracting customers is to do something different than all the rest. Sport Trade, which is expecting to launch in New Jersey in time for football season, is definitely a sportsbook concept that stands out from the crowd. Sport Trade, as its name implies, sits at the intersection between sports betting and day trading. And joining us now to explain the concept and talk about the company's plans is Sport Trade founder and CEO Alex Kane. Alex, welcome to Gamble On. Eric and John, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's session. Cool. So, so let's start with the basics. Um, where did the idea for Sport Trade come from? How long has it been percolating? And what's your like 60 second or so elevator pitch to explain to a newbie how it works? Yes. Yeah, so the idea came about in college. Um, I was uh, trying to place a bet on a golf event and it was the Masters. And I looked at a golfer that was a thousand to one. And because I had played golf in college and watched a ton of events, I kind of felt to myself that this was a mispriced golfer. I had no doubt that he wasn't going to win. I mean, I knew that a thousand to one shot is almost never wins, but I just felt like he was more like 50 to one. He was playing really well on the Asian tour. Everyone now knows his name, Kiridet Choppy Bonrad, if you're a golf fan. But in 2016, yeah. he was a no name. Yeah. You know, and I've had my dad place a bet through his friend because it was offshore and I, I had never actually placed a bet before and it was new to me. And I remember going to this website and seeing this long list of odds and just thinking that I had some sort of edge. Um, so anyhow, we placed 20 bucks on it and 20 bucks became 100 because, you know, now my dad's friends are all placing this bet. Now we're all Kiridet Choppy Bonrat fans. <laughs> and, and, and two days into the tournament, he's something like, He's in the second to last group on Saturday afternoon. And I go back to that same website and he was 10 to one. My thinking was like, wow, I, I did it. I, I found a golfer that was, you know, perhaps undervalued. And I'm, you know, we made a trade, so to speak. And, uh, and now like, now what? And of course, that's when I learned like, that's it. And of course he shoots 75 or 76 on Saturday and, you know, slides back into kind of oblivion. And I just left that thinking like, you know, okay, I'm at Drexel at this point. I'm a junior. I was uh, in the finance program and I'd learned about options trading. And I learned about this concept of like buying an out of the money option and then watching its value change and always being able to sell it. And I thought to myself like, okay, this is inevitable. Well, someone's going to create an app that allows you to trade on the probability of events to occur, much like you trade on everything else. And, and I think everybody's had this idea. I don't think it's a new idea. I just think that no one's really done it for the American audience and tried to build this in a way that is a more approachable and equitable way of, of betting, as opposed to how betting exchanges have kind of always been built, which is like they give you a ton more functionality and they're for more of the avid better. And that's all great. But I, I really think there's an opportunity to build something that actually can grow the overall market in terms of potential audience. So, so the idea was actually starting then before PASPA fell, um, mm -hmm. but so after the Supreme Court's ruling on PASPA, is that when you started getting serious about, hmm, maybe I should build this company? Exactly. Okay. And I set out to build this, and it was early 2018, and the Supreme Court case was still going on, of course, at that point. And I was just like, okay, how do I do this? Like, 
how do you build an exchange? Like how, like how does a stock exchange work? What is a stock price? How, how does a trade happen? And, you know, 2018 and 2019, um, I went to the Techstars program in Philadelphia, which was great exposure. Comcast is still on our cap table. Techstars is still on our cap table. And then in 2019, everything changed. I got to meet, you know, these high frequency trading groups from Chicago. And I learned all about not only how to build an exchange, but how to build a successful exchange. And I just ended up meeting the right people through LinkedIn and cold calling. It's, it was never my background and I was never in finance. My parents are not from finance. And I was able to learn how the revolution, the revolution about stock market trading, it used to cost $100 in commissions to place a stock trade. And now, as we know, it's instantaneous and it's free. And how did that come to be? And who were the people involved? And what were the technologies involved? And what was the thinking involved? And I started to see parallels between that level of thinking and how sports books look now and how I experienced them at first and what they could look like if sport trade is successful. And that's a world where it's more approachable to place a bet. There's less friction. There's no delay. The pricing's great. You can choose your own price. You can trade in and out. And that's why the stock market has exploded over the last 25 years. And all we're doing at sport trade is taking those exact same principles and trying to apply them to sports betting. Yeah, I, I got a real awakening in 2018 after uh, Pasper fell uh, from a lot of the uh, sports betting operators. And what they said is there is an absolute race to get into somebody's iPhone. Now, for somebody like me, yeah, I'm not going to have 20 apps, sports betting apps, because I don't even have 20 apps total. Um, I kind of don't want any apps, but I need a few, so I do them. So once you get one or two, I'm not going to go any further. But actually, for millennials, the problem is they have too many damn apps on their phone. And while you know you can spend an hour, a little bit tedious, you can get rid of more than half of them and make it manageable, inertia rules the day. So the casual player only has three sports betting apps, and he's not going to sign up for another one, probably. Now, you do have a different product here. So are you going after those people, and you can convince them to be the fourth app in their phone? Uh, on sports betting? Or are you going after, say, day traders and financially minded people who are pretty competitive, obviously, may like sports, but maybe haven't gotten into sports betting? Or do you go equal parts of both? Or you'll take any any customers you can get? Or how, how does it work? Yeah, so I think the answer to your question, and you're totally right, by the way, the market is so inundated by products that all look the same. Um, I saw a recent report for betters in Ontario and their number one gripe with sports books was the UI UX. I mean, if, like if you use an app like Instagram or Robinhood or Coinbase or Uber or Lyft, there's a certain experience you get as a customer. There's no loading screens. It's not glitchy. It's natively built. And then you try a sports betting app and it's like, oh man, like really? Like, I, you know, and I, I think for the, particularly the younger audience, those that, you know, are digitally native, um, that doesn't quite sit well. And I think that's why you see those sort of numbers. So what is our plan? How do we get from like zero to relevance? And I think it's a two-step plan. Step one is you're totally right. There are going to be customers out there that are going to absolutely love sport trade, either A, because they are day traders, they're stockbrokers, they're market makers, they work at exchanges. And think about how many of those live in Northern New Jersey. And they don't come from this from a I want better odds perspective. They come at this from like a, I never would have used DraftKings before. But if you're telling me for this Phillies game that the market is 47 bid at 48 and I can put a bid in the midpoint, 
and I can go long from 47 and a half and then sell out when the score is one zero at 57 and a half. Oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. That's what I do all day. And I think that second type of customer in that first step is that more avid, higher volume, sharp, aspirational sharp, think of the unabated type customer is going to really love sport trade because of the less delays and the tighter fees and, and the tighter prices rather. And I think over time, our vision is to really be, you know, how Robin has and, and Coinbase are perceived. And that is the approachability of like, okay, I'm 21 years old and I've been using Robinhood for maybe a year or two. Do I want to learn what minus 110 is on the Phillies? Or do I want to buy the Phillies at $51 and sell them when they hit a home run? Maybe that's a little bit easier for me. So I think over time, it's to get to more of that recreational type customer. But I think over you know year one, that's just not going to be a reality for us. Um, so John and I have talked a lot uh, about the immense popularity of parlays and how they appeal to the better who wants to risk a little and have some tiny negative EV chance of winning a lot. Am I correct to say that sport trade is kind of the opposite, that, that customers are trying to grind out small edges and profit through volume rather than through one big hit? And if so, are there concerns that the audience for that isn't as vast as the audience for these lottery style parlays? I think it's, I think the products are going to coexist. I think in the, in Europe, you have betting exchanges account for, let's call it 8% of revenues. That would be a huge opportunity in the U.S. alone. I think it's going to be a lot bigger because we try and build sport. We try to build sport trade to be more approachable than, you know, I show it to my friend. I show it to my mom, for example. Mm. And it's great. You know, we're, we're watching the Boston Celtics versus the Golden State Warriors. Now, keep in mind, this is someone that's never placed a bet before. If I put DraftKings or FanDuel in her hands, she would have no idea what she's looking at. She has, however bought stocks before she has used predict it before we'd like to do that during the elections every other year and she picked up on sport trade really quickly she bought golden state at 60 dollars a contract she bought one and she's watching the game and steph curry drops a three and she's like oh my gosh i want to sell now and now it's 65 dollars, and she makes five dollars so when she's thinking about and and i think she's representative of that customer we can ultimately bring to the sports betting space that either thinks Sports betting is not for me. It's not approachable. What's this American odds thing? And for her, she doesn't come at it from like, I'm going to grind it out perspective. She, it's, it's a more approachable way to approach the game. That price is the probability. You don't have to learn what minus 150 or minus 185 is. It's more like, wait, this is just like trading on everything else. I think for the more avid better, to your point, take Captain Jack as, a, as an example, he would look at this as a grinded out. Like I'm going to day trade this total here and I'm going to watch the unabated screen and the sport trade price. And every time there's a disagreement, I'm going to place a small trade. And I think there's going to be a use case for that. But our, our general goal is to be more mass market over time to have someone think, oh my gosh, the Phillies just hit a double. Like I wonder what the price is on sport trade. Maybe I should sell out because I bought last inning as opposed to the, the more buy and hold type better, which is I placed my 10 game parlay you know, and in the first inning, you know, Stott doesn't get a hit and now I've lost and now I'm disengaged for the rest of the game. Right. I appreciate you putting everything in mostly Phillies based terms. That's uh, <laughs> that, that's what we like here on the show. Or I shouldn't say we. That's what I like here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I want to talk about micro and macro here. Micro is definitely you mentioned North Jersey, but particularly Hudson County, particularly Jersey City. 
Hoboken and Secaucus. So uh, Hoboken and Jersey City, you have path trains, you know, 10 minutes and you're in Midtown Manhattan or Lower Manhattan, actually. And then uh, Secaucus Junction, you can take a train into New York Penn Station. Uh, so Midtown and um, the number of residents of Hudson County who work in the financial services is rather high. And these are wealthy people. These are young people, uh, access to New York City. Uh, there's even, of course, West Side New York City residents who would who would cross on the path train to place bets with your company. So, you know, in 2018 and 2019, these train stations were basically wallpapered with FanDuel and DraftKings ads. I mean, you know, the average you know, commuter is like, I don't even know what the hell this is. And what is, what are $500 off a thousand dollars? It was kind of crazy. So I'm wondering, am, am I going to get the same thing here now with sport trade uh, when I go to the, any of these stations or, uh, uh, or is that, and then in general, is this the exact customer you want? I think it's a fantastic candidate for a great customer that we would love to service. I think we won't see the level of inundation because as we have found out sitting on the other side, just generally as an industry, that didn't really work. You know, paying someone a thousand dollars to try your product when you have 23 competitors also paying a thousand dollars for customers to try their product yeah. creates a, an incredible opportunity from the customer's perspective to earn a lot of free money. Uh, but B bigger picture, it's not sustainable. So that is a great customer for us, but I think the way we get in front of that customer is more about where do they spend their time and how do we get them to convert down the funnel quicker? And we're gonna be spending less on brand and awareness and more on kind of activation. So we have some really cool things planned with some of those FinTwit, FinTech type influencers that you know are on Twitter, they're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, because that is, the, as you mentioned, a very good audience for us. And this is what they do each day. In fact, I'll tell a very quick story about a platform called Trade Sports back in the early 2000s was exactly sport trade, really, uh, before the democratization of finance, before the mass adoption of day trading, thanks to apps like Robinhood and Coinbase. And the way they acquired customers is they went to every trading floor, mostly in New Jersey, and New York, and in Chicago, and said, this is what you do all day for March Madness after the trading floor is closed anyway. Here's a way to do it online. And you're totally correct that you're going to bring in a totally new customer that's going to think about sports betting in a way it's never been thought about in a regulated sense before. And that is, wow, the over the over 48 and a half, you know, point total points market in the, the Jacksonville Jaguars at Buffalo Bills game. I'm going to put a limit order to buy a thousand contracts at $50 a contract because I feel like the market's going to come down a little bit and I don't want to pay 51. And you're going to have those types of participants adding liquidity to the order book, which is great because that allows the people that are taking the other side of that to have an instantaneous transaction. So it's, it's a very good customer for us. And it's already been proven that that customer exists and that customer is higher volume, higher value than a normal sports bet. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of 1990s Wall Street. I knew some guys who, you know, they couldn't just do a March Madness bracket pool, right? That's just too yeah. dull for them. It's kind of comparison what you're talking about. So they would have everybody put up like a thousand bucks and everybody would pick a, a team out of a hat. And uh, so some people get a 16th seed worth nothing and other people get a top three, top four seed, you know, it's worth a lot. And they would immediately start trading. You know, I've got Duke, a second seed. I hate Duke. If you're any right minded person would, um, I can cash out for 3,500. This guy loves Duke. And then that guy in the middle of the tournament is going to, he doesn't like a possible ankle injury or whatever. He sells it for 4,500 because they've won three rounds and all that. So they, they do 
think differently. So, but I promised a macro question too. So people who are not near New Jersey uh, and who like this idea and who are prone to the, where else are you going to go next and how soon can you get there? It's a great question. And I think my honest answer to you, I think sometimes people will say, oh, you know, we're going to be here, you know, here as soon as possible. And I think the honest answer from us is we have to nail New Jersey, right? I think there's, this is a very new concept. It's an interesting hypothesis as you juxtapose it against the FanDuel DraftKings methodology. And we want to prove that this works. We want to prove in that we bring in new customers to the space. We want to prove that customers, to your point, John, will add a fourth app to their, you know, um, daily what they check to play spell on sports and that we can convert that market at a cost way lower than our competitors. I think we're going to do that. Um, and I think once we're able to do that, it's going to allow us to grow our business. And we have market access in Colorado. We have market access in uh, Indiana. We have market access in, in Louisiana. And we will get there. But I want to make sure to be clear that, you know, for us, it's about nailing New Jersey. It's about listening to customers, making the product better. And then at that point, taking a great product and bringing it to Colorado so that on day one, we can hit the ground running. I don't have an exact date for you. I think it's the later half of 2023. Um, but again, it's because we want to, you know, if you prioritize everything, you're prioritizing nothing. And as a smaller company in this space, we don't have unlimited resources to hire a ton of folks to move ultra fast. Hopefully we will be, but at this point we have to be kind of really nuanced and, and intentional with our, with our strategy. Very cool. Well, it's uh, certainly an, an exciting venture and uh, we wish you the best of luck, Alex, uh, in New Jersey and hopefully uh, beyond that uh, somewhere down, not too far down the line. Uh, if anyone's listening and, and wants to learn more, where should they go to, to learn more about uh, what sport trade has in store? Yeah, I really appreciated this opportunity. Um, you can find us on, on socials, Twitter, uh, if you type in sporttrade or sporttrade.com. One very quick point I'll mention about kind of what I think customers in New Jersey are really could look forward to and will be live by the football season is this doesn't work without the liquidity. And this is where we are bringing some of the firms that are more typically in the financial sector into sports betting. And if you know, if you buy the Eagles at, you know, 53 against the Lions and then they score a touchdown and you go on sports and you go to sell them and it's not, there's no price, this won't work. So I think what customers can look forward to is, is a, a very liquid platform on day one. And that's thanks to the partnerships that we have with market makers who are aligned with us to create a hyper liquid venue. Eric doesn't have to wait for John to put an offer out there so that he can then get out of his Eagles bet. There's always going to be a market and that market is provided by market makers. And I, I hope customers uh, really love that experience of always having an instantaneous ability to, to get in and out of positions. So that's where you can find us on social. And that's a little bit of a sneak peek of what customers can expect when we launch in September. All right. Very thanks, cool. Alex. Thank you so much, guys. Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And John, you are hitting your stride here in midsummer. Mm -hmm. You've been consistently doing more winning than losing of late on golf and on secondary professional football leagues <laughs> as well. Uh, that continued last weekend. Uh, your two top 20 golf bets split 
but you invested more money in the winning one as Cam Davis for top 20 won us $110 and Davis Riley for top 20 lost us a mere $50. And your mastery of the USFL translated to the (laughs) CFL with the plus 135 underdog Argonauts winning on the money line, earning us a $135 profit on your $100 bet. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say I helped us as well, but that would be a lie. Uh, my only bet that got graded was the first of my boxing bets where I took minus 180 favorite Joette Gonzalez. I felt good when he moved to minus 280 the next day, but moral victories like that don't count for anything. He lost a split decision to Isaac Dogbay, so that cost us $90. That means overall for the week, we won $95. So we're now down 2,931. We also have $1,110 on Holden Futures bets, so we're left with... Fifty-nine, fifty-nine available to bet with this week, and you're up first, John. Uh, nice to be under the three thousand deficit mark, I suppose, which is sure. something I never <laughs> thought I'd say two years ago. But you know, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> now I killed that Argonauts game. They had a twenty-eight to eight advantage in first downs and had their way with Saskatchewan pretty much the entire game, except on the scoreboard, or we didn't take the lead until the final minute. <laughs> that would have been a crazy bad beat, but we dodged it. So back to the CFL and DraftKings is absolutely giving money away on this one. We take the four and one British Columbia Lions with the league's best quarterback against the quarterback list four and three rough riders again. Saskatchewan has a regular quarterback claiming he'll somehow play this week, even though, yeah, he's got that MCL knee injury and yeah, he's still catching his breath from after effects of COVID. Yeah, I don't think so. The six foot seven backup last week was awful. Think Tim Tebow, where the proper use of him should have been inside the five yard line where he could run or pass for the TD. Otherwise, forget about it. So this one has blowout city written all over it. So we go Lions 165 to win 150 at minus 110. Okay, so that's is that against a spread or that's on the money line? Uh, I'm given two points. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. All right. Only two points. I think it'd be seven and a half. Right. It's two. That's why I'm saying they're giving money away, I think. All right. All right. Cool. Um, So I'm going to take another swing at boxing. I lost last weekend's bet. I still have bets waiting for August 6th and August 20th. But there's a fight this weekend, July 30th at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, the co-featured bout on this card where I saw the odds and I did a little double take. Uh, Heavyweights, Adam Kalnachki versus Ali Aaron Demirazin, two middling guys, not serious contenders, top 50 heavyweights, but not top 20 heavyweights. Uh, But Kalnachki, born in Poland, lived in Brooklyn since he was age seven. He's a crowd favorite at Barclays. Demirazin is nothing special. So on my boxing podcast, I picked Kaunachki by lopsided decision. My co-host picked Kaunachki by late stoppage. And the experts at CompuBox, uh, the punch counter guys, they also picked Kaunachki by close decision. Hmm. So I fully assumed Kaunachki would be like a minus 200 favorite, saw the odds, and he's between a plus 145 and plus 160 underdog. Hmm. I suspect that's coming from the fact that he has lost his last two fights, but they were both against the same opponent. It was a bad style matchup for him. Demirazin's one loss is against a worse opponent. And if this is a close fight that goes the distance, Kaunachki has that home ring advantage. So simply put, I think the sports books have the wrong guy favored. We will take that highest available price, of course, plus 160, and bet $50 to win 80 on Adam Kanachki. All right. And we're running out of weeks in the 21-22 PGA Tour season, but another awful field presents an opportunity with the Rocket Mortgage Air Quotes Classic in Detroit. Um, I'll also go back to the Davis Riley well. To be clear, he was our losing Davis last week. Right. Uh, and uh, he's at 50 units at plus 180 to make a mere top 20 finish. And another 50 on Cameron Tringali. Yes, another Cameron uh, for top 20 at plus 180 as well. 
And finally, I'll go with pending rookie of the year and British Open runner-up Cameron Young at just 10 to win at plus 1,700. Okay. Um, I, I was a little concerned that you were going to, uh, you know, so down on these PGA events that we were going to have a, a live golf bet uh, working its way into the podcast this week. Uh, but There's I'm, a story I'm, to that that I'm working on. So okay. uh, all right. well, stay but tuned, I'm, everybody. All right. But I, I'm glad you didn't anyway. I don't want our bankroll involved in uh, sports <laughs> washing. I'll just say that. All right. So uh, after failing a couple of weeks ago at Summer League Basketball, uh, I'm trying to stick to things I know this week, uh, which means betting on the Phillies, uh, as our guest Alex Kane would want me to. Um, I don't love the prices on them to beat the Pirates tonight or to cover on the run line, even with their most reliable pitcher, Zach Wheeler, on the mound. This is the kind of game the Phillies can easily find a way to lose. So instead, I've decided to just play some fun home run bets. Um, the Pirates are starting righty Zach Thompson. Uh, so I found three left-handed hitters with solid home run potential. I shopped around to find the best prices on each. We'll take our guy, Kyle Schwarber, who delivered for us last time. He's plus 250 at FanDuel to hit one out. Let's bet $40 to win 100 on him. We'll take Derek Hall, a recent call-up who's shown good mm-hmm. power. He's plus 480, also at FanDuel. So let's go $20 to win 96 if he homers. And lastly, Bryson Stott is plus 700 at DraftKings. He was the hero three days ago against the Braves. So $15 to win 105 on Stott. Little sprinkling there, $75 invested total. We come out ahead if any one of the three goes yard. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Alex Kane. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, so I've been meaning to get to this for a long time. And I mentioned earlier of my take on TVG becoming an all-sports channel. Uh, reminded me to finally mention it here. Um, I suspect there are some horse racing-loving subscribers. And I think many of you have strong opinions on this, good or bad. Well, please feel free, and everyone feel free, email me at jbrennan at usbets.com with your comments. I won't quote you at all unless I get permission. Those are the ground rules. Not even anonymously if you're not okay with that either. But I can learn a lot from these exchanges, and I very much want to learn. You know, I've often spoken to college students and told them, even with some investigations I've been a part of that lasted a year or more and bore a lot of fruit, always remember that. And now I'm realizing this reference kind of dates me, but it is what it is. Uh, no matter how far down a rabbit hole you manage to get, somebody somewhere is at the breakfast table reading the newspaper and saying to themselves, you know what? These guys got pretty far toward the bottom of the story, but if they only knew the rest of it. And that's the person I always sought to find. You know, even if you're not that guy or gal, uh, I'd still welcome hearing from you. So. Bring on the feedback, and I'll be happy to uh, have a conversation with you, and uh, hopefully I even learn something along the way. And with that, until next time, gamble on.